Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. This is our 50th interview in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series. To celebrate the success of this podcast and touching so many people's lives around the world, I'm turning the microphone for this episode over to my good friend Adam M. As my very first interviewee for the podcast, Adam was one of several AA friends who suggested doing an interview with the creator, producer, writer, editor, director, and host of this podcast, namely me. Though I've sought to share meaningful parts of my story during conversations with my podcast guests, the purpose of this podcast has always been to hear the whole story. So in the spirit of that commitment to let listeners hear my AA story, I gratefully relinquish control of today's show to our guest interviewer, Adam M. Welcome, friends, to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. My name is Adam, and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 20th, 2004. And today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, the creator of the AA Recovery Interviews podcast, Howard L. My name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, tell me about this, uh, this podcast that you've created, and this is the 50th episode now. You've recorded 49 other alcoholic stories. What's this experience with the podcast been like for you? It's really been terrific, Adam. As a matter of fact, um, when I started, and you were my first guest uh, back in December of 2020, one of the things I've enjoyed the most is being able to sit down for an hour, an hour and a half with people who, some I know very well, like you, some I just met in the last year over Zoom. Most of them are friends here in Houston, people I got sober with. Other people from other parts of the world, like the London meetings I go to, and a few guests from places like Florida and Los Angeles. It's been very cool to be able to sit down with those people and get to know their life stories in a way that is not always possible in a speaker meeting. Hearing someone's entire story in a way that gives you what you need to feel like you really know the person at the end of it. The interview process allows me to be able to ask questions and get clarity about things people might say in an AA club that aren't exactly clear. So somebody says, well, I went here and I went there and I went this other place back in 1993 and then I went over here and over there and I'm, I'm losing track as a listener. I'm right. losing track. Now, what, where were they going? What were they doing? So as the interviewer, I can zero in and, and clarify those things. I can also direct the entire story. For a lot of people, especially I've, I've interviewed about eight people now who have more than 40 years sober. When you talk about somebody's sober story at 40 years, they got sober a really long time ago. Yeah. And between the what it's like now and the what happened, there is four decades worth of stuff. And I always like to ask, so... Tell me about the intervening years, because getting sober in AA is one thing. Living sober for days, weeks, years, and decades is something else. And so right. I like to zero in on what the gifts have been, what the challenges have been, because a lot of people, and you and I both know them, they might get really sick 
during that yeah. time, and they're 20 years sober. Or they might have an economic turnaround or some sort of uh, financial difficulties, or relationships go south at whatever time within that long period of sobriety. I like to know how they got through that, what it was like for them in that process, and how the heck did they stay sober when their wife died or when they lost their business or whatever. The flip side of that, of course, always is lots of good stuff that has happened between sobriety date and today. Tell me about some of those things. And because I've always felt that we're more at risk getting drunk when things are going really well because we lose sight of why things are going really well and start taking credit for it. Because there are so many cool things that happen and neat things that happen, I want to share with the listeners about that so that people listening can say, wow, your life was going so great. How did you stay sober through that? Which is an right. unexpected question for most people because it's almost counterintuitive to say to somebody, you know, your life is going so great, so you need to go to AA. just doesn't sound right. So to answer your question with a really long-winded explanation, <laughs> what I would say is that this just gives me the opportunity to kind of craft people's stories in a way that allows them to tell it with me kind of orchestrating sure. the framework of it. Sure. Yeah, there's so much wisdom in a story. Yeah. And I also have considered that, you know, some of the folks that you've interviewed mm -hmm. may not be around much longer in this yeah. life. Uh, we're all destined uh, to leave this world at some point. And so to me, I can remember coming into the program and hearing stories about people like Francis right. Y and some mm -hmm. other long-term mm -hmm. sober people who died sober. I guess I get some of the wisdom from what I've heard secondhand from mm -hmm. them, but what a, uh, a repository for wisdom that this podcast also is, you know, and, and then of course happening in the pandemic oh, yeah. when speaker meetings are just finally coming back online. Yeah. Uh, it's allowed people, I think, another connection to the program when we were not able to do the things that we'd all been accustomed to doing. You're right. This does become kind of a time capsule right. in a way. Perhaps they're leaving something behind that will be of meaning to people who they love. Yeah, well, it's tremendous service to our community. and. I, for one, really appreciate what you're doing. My biggest challenge these days, Adam, is how do I get the word out to more people? Right. Because these are really powerful stories. Mm -hmm. I've been relying mostly on word of mouth. I'm not a big user of Facebook and, and Instagram mm -hmm. even less and Twitter just hardly right. at all. But interestingly right. enough, we've had a lot, a lot of listens so far to the different yeah. podcasts that are out there. Uh, the length of them allows people to listen to them and come back to them at any point. Uh, the fact that we've already produced 50 of these things means that people have a nice variety. Uh, the website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, has all of the people who I've had on, so people can listen at the website, or they can go to any podcast provider like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and just search for AA Recovery Interviews, and they'll find it because it's, it's, it's everywhere. They can go to the website and click on one of those podcast providers and it will take them to that podcast providers page. Oftentimes with your phones, whether they're Android or iPhone, you still have to download a podcast app, whether it's Apple's native Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts with Spotify or Pandora. You have to join those and then the, all the podcasts would be available as with this one. Well, let's get into your story. So you've been sober for a long time. Yeah. What, uh, what were the series of events or circumstances that uh, led you to consider joining AA? 
Well, yeah. So I've been sober now. January 1st will be 34 years, which just yeah, it wow. kind of blows my mind that, that it's been that long. Yeah, you know, the circumstances that led to it, I always like to say things got bad enough that I had to go to AA. But the <laughs> truth is I tried stopping drinking and drug using a number of times before I went to AA. All right. And frankly, every time I stopped, I knew I was going to start again. Yeah. Something about that. And there were times when I would want to stop smoking pot because I was a daily pot smoker for a dozen years. I, I started right out of high school and I, I stopped when I got sober at almost 31. I used to say, I'm not going to smoke pot anymore. But then I would take my whatever amount of pot I had, I'd put it in a Ziploc and I'd hide it somewhere in my apartment. Hide it I'd hide yourself. it from myself yeah, with the yeah. idea that I'm done smoking pot, but if I should want to start smoking again, I won't have to go through the trouble of getting it. I'll, I will already have it. It seems very practical. It, it was a very practical but unsustainable yeah. way of quitting, you right. know, because every time I quit for a few days or a few weeks at the most, I invariably would go back to it. And I would come up yeah. with lots of reasons. And one that I've heard over and over again in these podcasts is that the fact that I could stop for a few days or a week or two meant that I wasn't a drug addict because a drug addict would not be able to stop. Oh, I see. You had a, a definition or a concept of what an addict was, and you always made sure to not qualify as yeah, an addict. Yeah, as yeah, a matter of fact, yeah. my friends and I used to joke about the drugs that we were taking and the addiction, and the, the joke was, I'd rather be an addict than a dick, you know? And yeah. uh, <laughs> that's the way we thought about it, and that reality was for people who couldn't handle drugs and that sort of thing. But right. I was drinking a lot, too. And every time mm. I stopped drinking, I knew I would probably start again. And there were still bottles of booze up above the refrigerator in my apartment at that time. So you mentioned being a daily user of at least marijuana right. Uh, starting right after high right. school. When did you first uh, take a drink or take a puff? What was your first exposure to a mind-altering substance. Oh, man. Well, my very first exposure I had was when I was 13 years old, and I was at my bar mitzvah. Here I am, 13 years old, and the bar mitzvah ceremony is about a child becoming an adult or a boy yeah. becoming a man. And man, so what, yeah. what you do is you, you get up there and you lead the religious service, and by virtue of doing that, today you are a man. You've been able to join the men and right. women in the synagogue zone. So. But most of the time, it's just a big party. Lots of gifts, lots of, lots of celebration, sure. everything else. So here I am at my own bar mitzvah, and uh, everything's going well. I did a great job in the service. But here we are at the party afterwards in the reception hall of the place. And this little rabbi, couldn't have been more than about five feet tall, Rabbi Z, he had gotten me ready for that day. And somewhere along the way during the reception, he came up to me. And he said, Howard, today you are a man. I said, yeah, thank you. I, I, feel, I feel great. He says, today you need to learn to drink like a man. And he had a bottle of schnapps in his hand. And he said, here. And he literally, I mean, poured about a half a bottle of schnapps down my throat. And I was so blitzed. I, was, I, don't, I hardly remember anything else about the rest of that bar mitzvah. That was my first exposure to it. And I didn't like it. I really, really didn't like it because I don't know what whether it was peppermint schnapps or something else, but it just burned and I was gagging. It was yeah. horrible. So I didn't really start drinking again until I got out of high school because I was dating a girl in high school who didn't like people who drank. And it was either her or the drink. And at the time, her was what I really wanted. And so it wasn't until I graduated from high school during the summer between high school and college that I started drinking and smoking pot with my older sister, 
and her husband. They had just gotten married. And I would go over to their place. He was a big pothead and liked hashish a lot. That's where I first got turned on to marijuana and, and hashish, a few other things. We didn't do pills or anything else, no cocaine at the time. And he always bought these big 24 bottle cases of Labatt Ale, Labatt from, from Canada. Sure. And so I was weaned on that. And I really decided after a while that I really, really liked the taste of beer. So once I was doing beer, man, it was, that was the gateway to all, everything else. But what I found was I enjoyed doing pot. And unlike alcohol, where when I drank alcohol, my abilities to do things would diminish. When I was smoking pot, I always felt like it was sharpening me up and I was such a better driver and such a better student and such a better friend and all these other things that I literally started smoking pot every single day. It became part of my personality. I've known people, and to some extent myself included in this, um, for whom pot really takes a root in their life and becomes part of their identity, yeah. that oftentimes there's underlying issues with anxiety and depression. Yeah. At this point in your life, when you're graduating high school and starting to hang out with your sister and her husband mm -hmm. and getting into the world of drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. where were you emotionally uh, in terms of dealing with things like anxiety or depression? Well, you know, at the time, Adam, I didn't know that I had depression, although right. I think I'd had it my whole life. Growing up in the house I grew up in, it was miserable. It was a miserable, really? miserable t a childhood. In a lot, a lot of ways. But one of the things about that was that I didn't realize this until much, much later in my life. Clinical depression runs in my family. It's, it's like an inherited trait. My mother's mother was institutionalized with it. After the birth of her last child, she had postpartum depression. And she never recovered from it. And she was institutionalized mm -hmm. in Bellevue Hospital for the remainder of her life until she died. My wow. dad had severe depression most of his life. He, in the 1950s, and again, this is stuff I didn't know until I was an adult. He had right. shock treatments for it back in the oh, 1950s yeah. and was on lithium and all kinds of other strange things. Uh, my mother, she was a depressed person too. So yeah. we had all these depressives around us that all mingled and created this clinical depression, which I didn't recognize until after I was already in the program and, of course, I wouldn't recognize it because I'm smoking pot, and anytime I'm feeling yep. depressed, I go and drink or I engage in right. some other kind of behavior. When I wasn't doing that stuff, I was usually just laying around thinking, why can't life be better? And then I'd smoke some right. pot, and life would get better. Right. right? The self-medication. It worked. For, for a time, it, it worked. It did work. It did work. Yeah. 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 You mentioned the, the miserable situations yeah. of your household growing yeah. up. Like, uh, for example, what would a couple uh, oh, man. of those experiences be like? Well, my dad, my dad was a rageaholic, and, and uh, he didn't drink at all that I knew of in my whole life, and um, nor did my mother. So alcoholism didn't really enter into it. I don't remember any aunts or uncles even who were, who were heavy drinkers. But my dad was physically and verbally abusive to all four of the, the children. I was number three in the bunch. And my brother got it very, very badly yeah. and uh, for my dad. And he ended up, things were so bad at home for my brother that at 17, he ran away and joined the army. And this was in 1967. Oh, my. The heart of the <laughs> Vietnam War, yeah. So he gets, he gets deployed to Vietnam 
right about this time of the Tet Offensive in oh, Vietnam. And, but that's how bad it was, that he would prefer that to be dra- drafted yeah. and go to Vietnam than have to live at home with my dad. Right. My older sister got, she was pretty abused. Um, and then there was me. And I spent most of my childhood covered up with my arms up to, to block the blows. Oh, jeez. And it wasn't like he did that every day of the week. But when, when my dad was depressed, he would withdraw and not talk to people for a week or two weeks. He would just mm. not speak to anybody. And it was a really weird situation. When he felt like my bedroom wasn't clean enough or whatever, he would go over to a drawer, pull it out, and dump everything on the floor and say, now clean that up. There were times when if there was a shoe laying around the house, and our house wasn't meticulous by any means, but a, a pair of shoes that were in his way, he would, and he did this a number of times during my childhood, he would take the shoes and he would hide them. Yeah. So you go to your next pair and maybe you leave those around. He hides those. And there came a time at which nobody had any shoes. Oh, my God. And the, the tragic thing about all this was my mother was emotionally detached, emotionally unavailable. She had suffered horribly in her childhood. She was from a, a, a foster home. She lived in foster homes as she was a child because her mother was institutionalized. Her father was an, an illegal immigrant from Poland, and he was always scared, uh, you know, right. to be deported. And in those days, we're talking about the 1920s and 30s, right. men did not take care of the children. They just went into foster homes. So my mother and her brothers and sister were split up. My mother went to some very, very abusive places. And these are things I didn't find out until after I got sober. Again, these are all revelations. These are all the missing pieces of the puzzle that I'm growing up thinking, why am I feeling so miserable about myself and about my family? So my mother had suffered horrible sexual abuse at the hands of some of these foster homes. One of them that she was in, the woman found the way to game the system and had like 20 foster children. Oh, yeah. And she'd have them going out onto the streets. And I mean, it was like it was Jeez. like something out of uh, Oliver Twist, where right. she would have them go out and panhandle and bring home whatever change, and then she'd keep it. And so my mother left home. She she split when she was 15 years old. And, and I don't know where she lived, on the streets of New York for a while. And then she met my dad. So, but my mother's problem was that she was emotionally void. She just had no yeah, emotionality yeah. to her. Um, she she tried to be a good mother, but the thing that got in the way of me ever feeling like she was, was at the times when she could have intervened with my father, she never right. did. And right. I think she was scared of him. Yeah. I never saw him hit her. I saw him scream and yell to get her to the point of tears, but... I didn't never see, never saw her, him hit her. And then I was abused by my older brother. He's eight years older than sure. me. And he one time almost choked me to death Yeah. when he was about 12 and I was four years old or something like that. He was left to, to babysit us and he got real upset and mm. got me down on the ground and was, you know, had his hands around my neck and everything. And so my brother had his problems that came from that. Right. Of course, that's all he knew, right? Yeah. And my mother, I remember as a kid, Adam, when I was a teenager begging my mother, pleading with my mother to divorce my dad. I yeah. said, how can you let him do this to us? And she said, well, you know, he's got his problems and everything mm-hmm. else. What I didn't know at the time that I subsequently found out was my dad had had a traumatic brain injury oh. when he was a child. He was hit in the head with a swing and was knocked out for like three days. He was out cold for three days. And he also had epilepsy, which didn't show up until much later. And then he had 
from World War II. He had PTSD. Mm-hmm. He was in the um, the Army Police Corps over in Europe in France, and they were deployed to managing a German prisoner of war camp somewhere in France. My dad was on guard duty, and uh, he was you know he was there. And some of the Germans saw the uh, he had a star of David or sure. something around his neck, and they started berating him. I mean, through the through the wire yeah. and gates and right. and razor wire and that sort of thing. Yeah. And this is the story that I've heard. This is from my aunt. My dad never said anything about his war experience. Wow. Whenever I'd ask him, he'd say, "I'll tell you about it someday." And he never ever did. Mm. But clearly, he was warped by it. Um, but these. Nazis or these Germans in this POW camp were making fun of him and jeering at him and 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 whatever. And my dad had a submachine gun. He had like a uh, like a, a Tommy gun or some one of those yeah. other things. And he was he he was getting boiling mad. And they didn't realize how mad he was getting until he pointed his gun at them and was just about ready to. I mean, he was. Uh, I don't know if he actually pulled the trigger or not. I don't think he shot anybody. But one of his commanding officers saw this going on, came to his, knocked him down. My dad hit the officer wow. with his fists and he got, they, he, he was restrained and they sent him back. And my dad was medically discharged from the army. And, you know, he just snapped, absolutely snapped. So this was a man who was really damaged, damaged yeah. in his yeah. life and a mother who was really damaged in right. her life and right. trying to raise Two people who should probably never have gotten married, raising four kids who they probably never should have had, with each one of us walking away from that family of origin with our own issues. your own wounds from that experience. So whenever it was that alcohol and drugs came along, they were just what the doctor didn't order, but they were there. They were there, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've often wondered if somehow in some other parallel universe there was no such things as drugs and alcohol that the suicide and homicide rate for young people would be astronomical yeah. and it sounds like in many ways what your sister found what you found yeah was a way to medicate the pain of two parents who you know clearly were doing the best yeah. with what they had to work they with, with horror stories yeah from their own lives yeah and yet it doesn't minimize the impact it had on you and your siblings yeah that's a very cogent way to put it and when i have one surviving aunt on my dad's side of the family who's almost 90 and she has filled in a lot of the blanks as did a week at uh, family week when my sister was going through cocaine treatment Mm. uh inpatient for about 90 days we had family week and of course the therapist at that time this was back before i got sober about three months before i finally got sober i went to this thing and in the in the family meeting room, my older brother wasn't there because he had divorced the family years ago. And my younger sister came, stayed for 10 minutes, said, you're all crazy. And she left, took a plane, went back home. And as they started unraveling some of the original family of origin, it's like the puzzle pieces I was talking about earlier came into stark reality. Right. And I thought, no wonder my dad was that way. Here's the story of what it was like for him growing up. Right. And when my aunt tells some of the stories about my dad and about the family, and then in my mother's later years when she got to the point where she was so fed up with her life that she just was willing to say anything about anything, and I found out certain things, it started to make sense to me. And I thought, no wonder yeah. I turned to drugs and alcohol. No wonder their behavior it was as it was. You know, fortunately, I was able to 
medicate for as many years as I did, about 12 years. Yeah. Uh, how was your uh, that 12 years from when you started regularly using and drinking? People talk about the progressive nature of our disease. Um, so what was the progression like for you in your 20s? Well, okay, so I started drinking and using pot when I was 18. Right. I went into college. I got with a group that were a group of some major partying people. Sure. Most of them were drinkers. They weren't as much pot smokers as I was. So I smoked pot mostly on my own. I would go to parties already stoned and I'd duck, I'd duck out halfway through to smoke a joint or something like that. But that's where I really started to do my serious drinking. And huh. at college, I went to a, um, a state school in Ohio, which was a party school, every bit of a party school. Yeah. I didn't join a fraternity, but I was I was hanging with a group that had about as much fun as the people in the fraternities, if not right. more. And we had women around, which was cool. <laughs> but my first experience, I was only on campus. I only knew these people for a handful of days. It was a speech club on, on campus, like yeah. a debate club. And it was the very first party I went to in college. And it was one of these parties where I started off drinking beer because I like beer. But then they had this big, like... Uh, Tupperware garbage can that they were filling with all these different... Everybody would bring a bottle and pour it in. Yeah. And then they'd mix in a bunch of high C. Sure. And they'd stir it up, and it tasted very much like punch, yeah. you know, with a punch. Right. And I drank. I didn't know how to drink, so I, I just drank it by the glassful, and I was feeling great. I was doing some crazy, crazy stuff. Uh. But what ended up happening was... Um, Somebody was passing around. We got to the part of the party where people are just kind of laying on the living room floor in a circle, and someone's passing around a bottle of tequila. Yeah. And I didn't know how to drink tequila. Right. And they were passing around a salt shaker. I didn't know what that was for, so I passed that one on. But I said, just a minute, I'll be right back. I went into the kitchen. I poured half a glass of tequila, and I got a, a can of 7-Up and filled up it with the rest, and I drank that. I got so sick that yeah. night. Yeah. I just... It, it, a lot of it was, I can't remember, but I did get so, so, so sick. It took me three days. I, I think I had close to alcohol poisoning at that Absolutely. point. I would it imagine you would have, yeah. They took me home. I don't remember how I got to my room. And the next day was homecoming. Next day was the, you know, the girlfriend that I had from high school who came to co same college I went to, we ended up breaking up in the first semester because of my drinking and partying. Okay. She said that, the nice, straight-laced, good guy that I had been in high school was no longer the same man. Oh. And I was just as glad to get rid of her because she was yeah. getting in the way of using pot and, right. and, uh, and drinking and all my newfound friends who were doing the same thing that I wanted to do. So that continued. That continued throughout college. Right. I drank. I, we'd always have parties with reasons to get drunk. I was using pot every day. I had my little $2 bong. Sure. Which was great for one hits and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. It, it, besides, you know, the episode that you just mentioned mm -hmm. of becoming violently ill and mm -hmm. probably needing hospitalization, any consequences at this point? You know, what's interesting about it is the number of times that I drove drunk, and yeah. I, I hear other people on the show saying this. Sure. I mean, fortunately, there were those people getting caught. They got caught. I didn't. So, you know, the, the scales kind of balance out. But. Most of the time I drove stoned, not right. so much drunk, but I do remember driving drunk an awful lot. Yeah. And I remember it because I, I wasn't a, much of a blackout drinker. I blacked out a few times, but I, was, I usually remembered what happened. And 
you know, it amazed me that I never got into a, a really bad accident or whatever else. And, and part of the thing I used to like to do is I used to like to get stoned and drive. Sure. And that I, was a hobby. It was so a hobby. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And um, so I remember one time I got pulled over by a, a, a highway patrolman. And uh, I had just been smoking in my car. The car reeked of marijuana. There were joints on the seats. Right. You know, everything said that I had a roach clip in the ashtray. <laughs> and uh, he stopped me. He pulled up. He stopped. I stopped. I got out of my... Now, you're not supposed to do this, but sure. I did at the time. I mean, this was the late 70s. I got out of my car and I went over to his window. Right. And uh, meanwhile, when I got out of the car, I was able to throw everything out without oh. him seeing it. And I went over... And he said, no, go back to your car. And I said, well, what was I doing? And I stalled long enough. He came back to the car and uh, turned out I had a, one of my lights was out or something like that. Oh, I but I really dodged it because if he had pulled me over and he, he would have smelled it, he would have seen it. He would have, you know, my pupils were huge. Yeah. So we're in the dark glasses. There was another time that I got very, very drunk and I walked through a plate glass window. I was oh, just, my. I was joking around with people and doing the, you know, 23 skidoo right into a window. Wow. And, uh. I went right through it and got really cut and not bad enough to go to the hospital, but bad enough that I was bleeding all over the place. And then another time, uh, this was after college, uh, a friend and I got uh, caught fishing without a license, of all things. The only time I ever got arrested in my whole life. Well, all these colorful <laughs> stories of people getting arrested and going to prison that I've interviewed people with. The only time I ever got arrested was fishing without a license. Yeah. yeah. So I got taken to jail and... Uh, I got out of it by paying a fine because I completed no contest, and I was able to get out of that. Uh, we became like folk, folk heroes. We became like legends in our own time, you know. And any time we'd get together, it was always, we always had a drink to the time we got arrested. I see. That's back when I lived in Ohio. And then when I moved down to Texas, I fell into another group of people. And yeah. it was one thing after another. Yeah. Seems like there's a way that most of us in our drinking and using days are always looking for that group to belong to. That sense of family that maybe because we came from fractured homes that we're looking for that sense of belonging. Yeah. After I moved down to Texas, a few of my friends from Ohio had moved down here as well. So we got to hang out again. These were my using buddies. Yeah. And uh, whenever my sister would come down, she lived in Dallas at the time, she would always bring the good drugs with her. So we were oh. always doing, when she came down, we were always doing cocaine. We were always doing um, quaaludes and uh, ecstasy and other things. I used to really dig those. The reason I'd been, I didn't become much of a cocaine user was because it was so expensive and the high yeah. lasted so short. I was just like, oh, this, isn't, this is a bad value. But, but the ecstasy I liked and the other yeah. pills I liked. But it was mostly grass and hashish that we yeah. did. And we did that throughout the late 70s and, and throughout the 80s until I got sober in 1988. Every relationship I went after with a woman just completely tanked after the first few dates because I would I couldn't find a woman who could keep up with me. And those who did turned out to be real losers, you know. Yeah. And I guess no introspection at that point to be able to see that if they're losers, no, then what no. is this? Yeah. I was looking in the mirror and I wasn't getting the right image back or something. Maybe it wasn't a mirror. Maybe it was just a picture of myself in better days, you know. How did you get from Ohio to Texas? It was a job. So you're working at this point. Yeah, or? I was 25 and, okay. and moved down to Texas for a job. I see. I couldn't find any other jobs in the field I was in at the time. So I came down to Texas. Every job I had until I went into my own business or the job before I went into my own business, I felt like was a dead end. I see. And I always had to leave the job to get a better job. That's how I moved up and uh, was able to do okay with that. But 
And then I met my wife in um, in 1984. Four years before you got sober. I met her in October of 84. And the way I met her was I was volunteering at the hospital that she worked in the waiting room uh, for people who just had open heart surgeries. And oh. my job volunteering was to take the patient's families back into the recovery room and let them visit with the patient for five minutes even though the patients were all knocked out, but still it was sure. a way for people to know that their loved one was alive. Because my mother had had all kinds of heart surgeries and everything else, I thought I can relate to these people. She was working at the at the desk in this area, a waiting area where families would gather and then the, the doctors would come out. This is back when Dr. Cooley was, was doing his heart surgeries. And so oh. he was a you know, celebrity and sure. people are always around. I volunteered on Tuesday nights, and so I would be behind the desk with her. And as we were working on Tuesday nights, we got to chit-chatting and talking and, and, and having conversations and getting to know each other. And for six months, we were becoming closer and closer friends. And yeah. this is the first time in my life I'd ever had a relationship with a woman that started off being friends. Right. Right. You know, what I realized was somewhere along the way, I really enjoyed going I really enjoyed Tuesdays, and wow. I finally put two and two together and said, I really, I really like this woman. But she was, I think at the time she was engaged to somebody else who she ended up breaking up with. But she was starting to feel the same way about me. Mm. And then uh, we went out on a date in April of 85, and that was it. That wow. was it. And we've been together ever since. Oh, wow. So we just celebrated 35 years of, of, uh, of marriage. Turns out that she, of course, you know, she's the daughter of an alcoholic who died oh. an alcoholic's death, was sick and had a lot, a lot of issues. The very first time I met her parents, it was her father's fourth AA birthday. So the very first time I met them and they had wow. made a cake for him it was at their house. And I remember not knowing anything about AA and wondering what being sober was all about. And he ended up getting drunk shortly after that and just couldn't stay sober. And he uh, died. He died kind of a horrible oh, drunk's death, you know, yeah. from all the internal organ issues. Yeah. But, you know, wouldn't you know it, uh, she marries an uh, alcoholic. Of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, how did she tolerate uh, the four years from the time you started dating? Yeah, that's true. I mean, we, we were dating in 85 and I didn't stop drinking until January 1st of 88. So she tolerated it, you know, newly married, maybe hoping I would change. Sure. Every now and then she would say something to me about it. Right. But it's interesting because whenever she'd say, I think you have a problem with alcohol, I'd always say, you know, you've got your men mixed up here. Your dad is the one who's oh. got the problem, not me. Look at him. That's an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. You know, but meanwhile, I was continuing to drink, not as much around her, although when I did, she said I was a, a very, very sloppy drunk. And so finally, she said to me, she put down kind of an ultimatum, because our marriage, you know, our short-term marriage, we were married for a year and a half at that point. We married in summer of 86, so uh, a year and a half into it, things were really going south quickly in the yeah. marriage. You know, I couldn't, you know, just... Her tolerance for me was wearing thin day after day. Meanwhile, I was starting to fail in my jobs, and I was getting fired, and then I couldn't get another job, and I was kind of hanging out at home doing nothing. She didn't like that. Yeah. So finally, she hit me with an ultimatum one day. She said, you know, Howard, uh, I've watched you drinking and drug use over the years. Um, tell you what, I've made a decision. You can go ahead and keep on drinking and using drugs all you want. I was thinking... Wow, how oh, great is that? Yeah. She's giving me permission to engage in the things that I love probably more than her at that right. time, right? She said, yeah, you can continue to do that, but I will not be here. Mm -mm. 
you'll do that by yourself. Wow. Which basically, she was essentially laying down the ultimatum that I was to do something like stop or the relationship was over. And that was my turning point. And I had just come from this family week for my sister. All this happened in a very concentrated period of time in the fall of 87. Right. It was the first time I ever admitted I was an alcoholic when I was at that thing. But I didn't think I was one. And I came back and at that particular treatment center, they talked about codependence being at the root Mm. of all other addictions. So I thought, well, I think I could probably stop drinking if I go to Codependence Anonymous. Sure. Yeah. And so I did that for three months. And the problem was most of the people in Codependence Anonymous at that time in the late 80s that had just started, just had no idea how to do yeah. it. There yeah. were very few AAs that were going to those meetings. And I wasn't yet on medication for the, for the depression. Fortunately, one of the guys in my therapy group, I was in therapy at the time, said, you know, you ought to... Um, you ought to try AA. You go into you go into CODA meetings. You ought to try AA. And this was in the winter of, of '88. So I'd stopped drinking on New Year's Eve of 1988. I just said, okay, this will be the day that I pick, and I stopped. And I went to CODA, and I was going to CODA, and I was staying sober. Right. I was staying sober somehow. And then this guy told me about AA, and I went to AA. And this was I didn't go to my first AA meeting until early April. So here I was sober a little bit more than three months. Right. And I go to AA, and that's where I found sobriety. Where did you go for your first meeting? I went over to Post Oak. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I remember it. I remember thinking, what a bunch of garbage this is. <laughs> you know, because in the CODA meetings, they were all very loosey-goosey, and everybody had their own codependency issues. But a lot of people in the group were drinking and were use- still using drugs, but they were codependent. Sure. I thought, why can't that be me? Yeah. So I think if I had stuck around CODA much longer and hadn't gone into AA, I probably would have gone back to, I would have slipped, I'm sure. But in the very first meeting, I thought, man, what are these steps? What is this God stuff? It really bugged me. I didn't want to be in any place that was trying to shove God down. I'd spent my whole life right. with people trying to shove their ideas of God down my throat, you know. Right. And if you don't get saved, you will, you know, you will burn in eternal damnation. I think, well, what could be worse than this I'm going through right now, you know. Right. So, yeah, have at it, you know, bring it on. My MO during my first year was I would come late. I would go to meetings at 12.15 every day because it got me out of the office. Oh, I see. And I'd go to this meeting that was relatively close by, and I would come late. I would leave early. So I never got to meet people in the comings or goings. But then if anything was said during the meeting that I didn't like or objected to, I'd get up and leave. Yeah. And I'd walk out in a huff, and I'd say, geez, these people are nuts. What am I doing here? This is crazy. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't know what a sponsor was. I just had no clue. Nobody yeah. said, this is what a sponsor is supposed to do. I, I must have missed that in all the meetings I went to. Because I went to meetings virtually every day during the week, skipped the weekends, skipped the days that I was having therapy because I figured, well, that's yeah. my therapy for the day. Yeah. So you, your your AA program was really a check-the-box phenomenon in your life this first year, it sounds like. It really like. was. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine what would keep you going back with this kind of uh, attitude toward the program. Did it also, in addition to getting out of work to go do this on your lunch, did this help at the home front to keep the wife contented? Uh, it did. It did. She was glad I was going. She didn't quite trust that I was really doing the deal. And I wasn't. And so the, the only thing I could tell her is, look, I'm doing the best I can. I'm not drinking. I'm going to meetings. I'm not drinking. I'm going to meetings. And what, what was happening was I was going to these meetings and everybody around me was getting better and I wasn't. 
as I've always said, AA is a miserable place to hang out if everybody else is doing the work and you're not. Yeah. I didn't have a sponsor, so I had no guidance. Uh, I objected to everything that was written in the book. I objected to the steps and the traditions. I just thought, this isn't me. This isn't how I live my life. And about 10 months into my sobriety, in October of 88, I'd been sober up to that point. I'd even tried to do a fourth step on my own, hmm. going to a workshop where they oh. charged $75 to give me this big Hazelden guide with big pieces of paper and sharpened <laughs> pencils. And I started with it, and at the end of the day, first day, it was like, I had 17 pages of resentments about my father. Yeah. And I hadn't even started working the second column yet. And right, I thought, this right. is, I, I thought to myself, my God, what have I done? I've opened this Pandora's box and I cannot get it shut. The thing about that, though, was I was able to go to meetings after that and not feel so uncomfortable that I hadn't done a fourth step. Because I'd say, oh, yeah, I did a fourth step. Right. right. One column of one person in your life's right. worth of a fourth step. And I lied about it. I lied about it. And uh, so I was, I was, I had given up on AA at that point. Wow. Uh, by about October, I thought, this is just not working. This is ridiculous. If, if this is what my life's going to be like in AA, nobody likes me. Everybody seems to know everybody else except me. Right. I was never putting the, the, uh, the pieces together. Fortunately, there were a couple of people who got to know me a little bit during that period of time. And... Right about October, they could tell, I think, how despondent I really was. Because when I was sharing in meetings, I was sharing these platitudes that people must have realized, this is a man who's not doing the work. <laughs> and I had just given up on AA. I said, okay, forget it. This maybe proves, and I may be the first man to do it, that AA doesn't work. Right. It works right. for you, Adam, but it doesn't work for me. Good luck with that. I'll try something else. Sure. And there was nothing else. I had nowhere else to go. And so I finally decided I was just going to leave and not come back and go out. And a couple people caught me on my way out the door, literally almost on my way out the door. And they pulled me back in and they said, you're going out to drink, aren't you? I said, yeah, because AA doesn't work. It may work for you. It don't work for me. Yeah. They said, well, have you done any work? I said, oh, yeah, I did the four step. And they said, have you really? You know, and they really faced me down. And they said, why don't you try things our way? Give it 30 days of actually trying to do the work. Yeah. And then if it doesn't work, then we'll, we'll escort you out, you know, and then yeah. go to the bar. And the first thing they said was, get a sponsor. I said, how do I get a sponsor? They said, well, just ask somebody who you respect or who you like what they share. Yeah. And so I found a guy in the meetings that I used to go to, and uh, I asked him to be my sponsor. And he said, no. Mm. I said, wow, what's up with that? You know, I just thought, because you know, everybody said, well, you know, the sponsors, I thought the sponsor was like this mythical being up on a, <laughs> on, on a pedestal that, you know, had all, yeah. all knowledge. And, uh. but I thought, okay, well maybe I was a fluke, that guy, you know, cause the excuses he gave me were like, well, I, I got too much on my plate or whatever. So it took me about two weeks and I finally built up the courage to ask a second guy to be my sponsor. Wow. And he said, no. And I said, what? Mm. And he said, well, yeah, I got my own issues and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, man. And I felt absolutely horrible. I bet. Because I thought, man, what's wrong with me that nobody wants to sponsor me? Here I am told that this is really the thing and you should always say yes and blah, blah, blah. And, and here I was reaching out desperate to have a sponsor. And two men just completely turned me down. So I thought, well, this is just not going to work. This is just, just not going to work. And somebody said to me, because I told somebody about it, and he said, well, have you asked God to put someone in your life? And I said, no, that's not going to work. I've already asked these other two guys. If God had wanted them to be my sponsor, they'd be my sponsor. So 
I thought, well, what have I got to lose? And so I said a little prayer, I guess. I wasn't, when I was praying in those days, it meant nothing. Right. It meant absolutely nothing. Right. I had no spirituality whatsoever. I said, okay, well, God, if you're there, which I don't think you are, but if you are, and you're willing to help me out here, maybe you could help me get a sponsor. And I'll be damned in the next day or two, I don't know exactly when it was since that, that prayer, I was sitting in a meeting, and this is a meeting I was going to every day, so right. I knew most of the people by sight. There was a guy who came and sat down next to me, and he commented about the shine on my shoes. I'd had my shoes shine that day, and he was eating a bagel, and I commented on his bagel, and we just had some small talk before the meeting. Yeah. We found ourselves walking out together, and we got outside the club there, and he said, uh, do you have a sponsor? And I felt so ashamed about not having yeah. a sponsor that I lied to him. I said, yeah, I got a sponsor. And I was thinking, if I bend the truth, yeah, I talked to one guy one day. He must be my sponsor, right. you know, right? But, <laughs> but, you know, the thing about it was, and thank God, this was the God moment for me. What, what the God moment was, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, you don't have a sponsor, do you? Mm. And at that point, I had to come clean. I had wow. to say, no, I don't have a sponsor. And he said would you like me to be your sponsor? And I said, yeah, yeah, that would be great. I mean, he, wow. he was making it so easy. Yeah, that would be terrific. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll do it for 30 days. Yeah. And I felt crushed again. I thought, wait a second, <laughs> you know, here are two guys who turned me down. You're willing to say yes and only give me 30 days. What, yeah. what's, what? And he explained this to me, and I told my sponsors this for years. I've told other people this. And that is, he said, you know, asking someone to be your sponsor is like asking someone to marry you. If it yeah. works, if they say yes, it's all wedded bliss. If they say no, you're completely devastated and crushed. He said, but if we give it 30 days, and at the end of 30 days it's not working out, we can make a clean, clear break saying, well, we gave it 30 days, it didn't work out. Yeah. But if it continues to work out, then we'll just continue on, continue on. And Mike is my sponsor to this day. He's wow. been my sponsor for... This month will be 33 years that he's been my wow. sponsor. Yeah. And he hasn't lived here in Houston in the last 27 years, but we, he travels all the time, so we stay close when he comes to town by phone and when he's in a rental car or a hotel room. We talk all the time. Yeah. That's a beautiful relationship. And he's the one who took me through the steps. He taught me how to do the fourth step and how to do the fifth step. He helped me get through the eighth and ninth steps. And uh, I owe my life to that man. Yeah. But that was my moment of clarity. Right there was my moment of clarity, that I couldn't do it myself. He taught me how to pray. He introduced me into some spiritual literature like Emmett Fox and some of these other things that became really big for me. Eric Butterworth, we used to listen to those tapes together and talk about spirituality and God and everything else. And, and as a result, I, I think one of the greatest God gifts in my sobriety was that, yeah. that man's entry into my life. Yeah, even though you had been sober for some period of months, one could say more dry than really sober, that, that at that moment when he called you on your fib he did. and you said, here's the truth, that that's when the program really came alive. Yeah, and he and I have gotten the kind of relationship that I have with other guys I sponsor, and that is that if I hear you saying something that I know is just ridiculous, I'll say something <laughs> right. about it, you know. I would sure. rather err on the side of hurting your feelings than not saying it and you going off and something tragic happens. Yeah. But yeah, he taught me how to be a sponsor too, which is so important. And right. these days I go to meetings. One of the regular meetings I go to is with his sponsor. So my grand sponsor has been kind of get cool to get to know over these years. But he taught me how to sponsor other men. 
Yeah. Which was such an important part. I got my first sponsee when I was sober about a year and a half. And um, he died a number of years ago after getting a liver transplant after he slipped after a number of years. He'd been sober yeah. 17, 18 years when all this happened. And I hadn't heard from him, hadn't heard from him. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day, he calls me up and he says, hey, I got a liver transplant. I said, what? I didn't know you were sick. He said, yeah, yeah, my, my liver was shot, you know, cirrhosis. It was horrible, terrible. And somehow, I got a new liver. I said, well, wow, that's really great. His name was Fred. Uh, I said, that's really great, Fred. Um, you got a new liver. That's really terrific. So I guess this means, that, you know, you, you got to be really careful. Like, if you drink any more alcohol, you're done for. He said, no, no. He said, I got a new liver. I can drink again. And in his mind, having a new liver was to, like a reset. He died shortly thereafter, Jeez. unfortunately. So sometimes the disease has tragic consequences like that. Sometimes it, it offers us the greatest gifts. Your friendship with me has been one of the greatest gifts, I'll tell you that much. Well, and yours for me as well, mm -hmm. Howard. I can remember when we met at the, at the, in... 2007 mm -hmm. i'd been sober for a couple years yeah. but had my first sponsor had gone out oh, yeah. and i was kind of rudderless in the program to put it mildly still sober but i heard you share at a meeting and you were talking about the steps you were talking about solution you were talking about sponsorship mm -hmm. and i remember sitting there thinking this guy would be really good for me mm -hmm. but i don't know that i want that kind of uh, <laughs> accountability yeah, in my yeah. life and yet something came over me and i approached you after the meeting and you gave me the same spiel yeah. you said uh sure let's try it for 30 days and um i don't think we ever revisited the 30-day conversation because no, so. when when i would call you would ask me about what step i'm on about what meeting i'm going to about whether i prayed about who i'm helping yeah. and uh that formed the basis of uh, our early relationship mm -hmm. and then you encouraged me to get to sponsor and men mm -hmm. which i had not done at that mm -hmm. point and felt a great deal of inadequacy about yeah. and you told me to pray about it and to go to meetings with newcomers and of course it happens yeah. and then we talk about how to take another man through the steps yeah and you would ask me about my sponsees mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so what you're saying and what you experience with mike of course you're you're living it. I mean, I, I'm living proof of your program and the lineage from which you come from, which I'm a part of as well. Yeah, and the great thing about it, too, is that I get to see you and your sponsees and your grand sponsees and great grand sponsees. Yeah. I don't have to worry about what kind of program you're living because I see the way they're living their programs. And I'm knowing that, you know, this all flows together after yeah. a while. And Mike always told me, he said, the reason we sponsor other people is to keep ourselves sober. But the secondary reason, almost as importantly, if not just as important, is we sponsor other people to keep ourselves sober and to right. teach them how to sponsor other people. Right. And if those are the only two things, then that's enough. And, yeah, uh, yeah I remember that meeting that, that I met you in because I remember what I said that day. I said something like, you know, before I sponsor somebody, I tell them that, you know, and I talked about the, the, the right. fact that if you call me, I'm going to, we're not going to talk about anything else until you tell me what step you're on, what page right. in the big book, did you pray that day, blah, blah, blah. And you came up to me afterwards and you, you asked me about being your sponsor. And I said, I remember what I said to you. I said, did you hear what I said in that meeting? <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, yeah, yeah. And I said, are yeah. you willing to do the work? You said, yeah. Yeah. And what was great about you was that you, 
called me. I said, you know, you can call me every day. And and then we got to the point at which yeah. I said, you don't have to call me every day. And you said, <laughs> no, I need to call you every day to be accountable, to be yeah. accountable. And you did that for years. And what was yeah, great about that was that there were a lot of times I wasn't there, you know, didn't have the cell phones, whatever else that time. Sure. You would call, but you'd always leave me a message. And right. so it always like, I'm checking in, I'm checking in. And that had such a big impact on me mm -hmm. to know that. So I could gauge the quality of my own sobriety from seeing how you related to your sobriety. I thought, he's doing what I suggested he's doing. He's staying sober. Ergo, what I suggested is a good thing. And that kind right. of makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. Yeah, to see it in another is always more powerful than being able to see it in oneself. It really is. So you've been sober a long time. You married. Yeah. You've raised kids. You've had jobs, businesses, and health challenges, all sorts of things. Of the things that you've experienced in all your years being sober, what's been challenging? Mm -hmm. What's been some of the hard periods of your of your recovery life, and how'd you deal with them? Well, the, the first one came at about three years sober All right. when I was already married, and I think we were having our first child by then, but I was getting super depressed all the time, even though I was yeah. staying sober and working a good program. And people kept saying, well, you need to pray more, or you need to work the steps again. Uh, how about making a gratitude list? You know, when I feel that way, I turn on some happy music. Why don't you try yoga? And what they were telling me were remedies for the blues, okay? The things that you can do if you're feeling the blues and slightly depressed for a day or two or a week right. that will get you out of it. Or you just wait it out and you're out of it. It wasn't until then that I realized there was something more. And someone suggested to me, they said, you know, it does say in the big book, if there's a medical condition you're dealing with, go see a doctor. So I finally, finally went to see a psychiatrist. And he diagnosed me with clinical depression, like instantaneously. I think I hadn't even sat down. I was, you know, here, have a seat. And by the way, you're clinically depressed. <laughs> he saw the dark cloud <laughs> hanging above your head. Yeah. And he worked very intensely with me for, for a long time. And he prescribed medication from the get-go. And yeah. it was just a life changer because I had never, ever in my life felt not depressed it was, it was amazing how, how well it worked. Wow. And he was taking me back with hypnosis and EMDR and some of these other things to unravel some of the stuff that was strangling me from my childhood and from my adolescence. Always keeping in mind that I was an alcoholic on top of that. Mm -hmm. I just started to feel better and better. But I dealt with that initial conundrum of telling some people that I, w I had gone to see a medical doctor and he had prescribed... I think it was Wellbutrin at the time or something like that. And he said, oh, no, you can't take Medicaid. You can't take drugs. You take a pill, you'll be back. You, you know, you've blown your sobriety. You've been. Fortunately, my sponsor and some other people who I really respected said, no, you know, if you've got a legitimate medical reason for taking these medications, then, then you take them. And I did, and it made the difference. But since that time, I've always carried a soapbox around with me about depression. Yeah. Whenever I get the chance and I'm in a meeting where it gets brought up, I got to remind people that they have to be very careful taking advice from people. Because everybody knows what it's like to get the blues. Everybody knows what it's like to be disappointed and you feel down for a few days and everything else. Sure. But to tell a clinically depressed person, don't worry about it. Just, you know, uh, read a happy poem or put together a gratitude list, work another fourth step or whatever. To tell them that and them not take any medical action over that could be a very dangerous thing. And that's yeah. the, that was the feedback I was getting early on. Fortunately, the people closest to me were saying, look, 
Bill Wilson got medically treated for depression. We know that. He says that. Some of the information I was getting early on in sobriety was very misguided. So I'm very careful. And whenever I have a chance to tell people about my experience with depression, it's amazing how many people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I'm so glad you said that because I've been wondering uh, myself. I've had this all my issues with and, and I didn't think it was right for me to take, you know, to see a doctor because I, I just kept praying more and praying and it didn't go, you know, and that sort of thing. So it's important. So that happened at about three years. That changed my life. I thank goodness you uh, had those people close to you who sort of supported you in getting the help you need. And then we started having children. We had all three kids within five years, pregnant for the better part of five years. The kids are all about 18 months apart. So they were one grade apart in school. And today my youngest is 29 and my oldest is 32. And then my daughter, she's 30 years old. And they're all grown and on their own. I had the opportunity early on in their lives, about the time they could understand it, to sit them down and talk to them about the disease. And the fact that, you know, just be careful. You've got the gene. You've got the the family history. Um, My daughter doesn't drink or smoke or do anything. My two boys, they'll go out with their friends. You know, they say if you can get through high school and college without having a drug and alcohol problem, then the likelihood of you getting into it is probably lessened. And so I think they're responsible with whatever alcohol and or other things that they might be doing. Uh, But they're grown men. And I've always told them, even when talking to them, if and when you ever need help, I want you to know that I'm always there for you. It's It's like a personal responsibility pledge for that I'm responsible. I can imagine uh, having the experience you had growing up with your father and then thinking about the experience your three children had with you as their father. To what extent do you think AA and the other help you were getting for your mental health issues contributed? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I had such abject fear that I didn't want to have children. My fear, and I told my wife this, I don't want to have children because I'm so scared of being a father like yeah. my dad was a father and, and, and raising my children like the kind of home I was raised in. I was scared to death of it. Fortunately, my wife was, you know, she was very gentle with me. And by this time, I already had some recovery under my belt. But I had some people around me, especially men with considerably more sobriety and men who had grown children at that time who really kind of carried me through that and taught me how to be a father. What I'll say about me as a father was I wasn't a perfect father, but I was way better than my dad was. And the fact that all three of my kids turned out okay, what my wife always says, you know, if the best thing we can do is to raise them so they can get good jobs, so they can afford good therapy, we've done our jobs. And, and true <laughs> enough, true enough. I will say sure. all three of my children have clinical depression. They were all diagnosed with it. As, as does my wife. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I wish it was different, but they all are dealing with it and we've dealt with it since they were very first diagnosed. I often wonder what my life would have been like if I had been diagnosed and treated for depression as early as they were. But I think that that had a lot to do with it and they've, and they've all had therapy. So those have been the greatest gifts right there. The kids have been the greatest gifts. I've had other challenges. I've had two back operations in sobriety. Hmm. I've had some, uh, a couple of other emotional upheavals within my sobriety. I've had a couple of events occur that have been very, very devastating, but I've stayed close to the program at every turn. And 
when my dad died on my 16th AA birthday. He died on the birthday. January 1st of 2004. I came home from getting my 16-year chip at the Thursday meeting, and two hours later, I got the phone call that my dad had died. And the circumstances uh, that he died around were were absolutely horrendous and tragic and criminal, and it, it was a horrible situation. So I went out to Colorado, which he, where he had been visiting from Texas, to go to his funeral. And the very first thing I did was I went to an AA meeting. And here I was sober, you know, 16 years, and I went to an AA meeting before going to my sister's house there with all the madness that surrounded that, because my younger sister and I had a contentious relationship our whole lives. My mother was hysterical. My older sister was hysterical. I got off the airplane. I went to the 8th Street Club there in Colorado Springs. And I'll be damned, I'm sitting there in the club and I'm telling the people when I shared about why I was there. One of the guys pulled me aside after the meeting. He was the funeral home director that was, of the funeral home we were using the next day. Oh, my goodness. Somebody else pulled me aside and he was the manager of the cemetery in which my dad was going to be buried. And they, they gathered around me. It was like a cocoon. It was beautiful. And I left there and I was centered and I, I went into that maelstrom and I got through it. And I went to one or two other meetings during that time. My mother passed away in 2012, again, very tragically, and from situations which involved medical neglect and, you know, essentially the the world-famous heart surgery team that she was seeing at the time forgot one very important part of her discharge instructions, which was Coumadin, which is she had to take, she had an artificial valve, she had to be on blood thinners. Yeah. And they forgot to put that in the discharge instructions to the rehab place that she was sent to after being in the hospital so for two weeks she was off coumadin without anything else and i went in there and she wasn't getting better she was getting sicker and sicker i said what's going on here she's supposed to be getting better and i said have you been giving her this yes you've been giving that yeah how about her coumadin what coumadin and it turns out that the that this world famous heart surgery group had forgotten to put that on the the discharge instructions and i was livid but someone suggested to me that i pray about it and that i I take the high road. I called them up, and their response to me was, oops. So my mother dies, very tragically, and uh, two hours after I closed her eyes, I was at her bedside when she breathed her last breath, I closed her eyes. Two hours later, I was sitting at the club in a meeting, telling people how I had gotten through that that morning, this very tragic, horrendous situation. And that's where I was. And on all the good days and all the bad days and every day in between, I go to meetings. During this COVID thing, it's been wonderful to be able to have the Zoom meetings. And I've known some people who have died from from the disease. Yeah. But I also know a lot of other people who are still, many more people who are still alive because of Zoom. Right. I even invested in Zoom, believe it or not. I put some money into their stock and... For whatever reason, it's been going down. I don't know what's up with that, man. I use it all the time. You'd think they'd be making some money on me, you know, but uh, anyway, it's been a tough year for a lot of people, but I'm back to going to live meetings. Doing the podcast, I do this podcast. I also did the Big Book podcast where I read word for word, cover to cover, the first and second editions of the Big Book. People can tune into the Mm -hmm. podcast and hear one chapter or one story per episode. And it's a great way for people to be able to listen to the big book. There are plenty of other audio versions of the big book out there, but very few of the first and second editions. And then the other thing I did was I put together the stories from the first and second edition 
into mm. uh, like a Kindle book called Lost Stories of the Big Book because most people who've never seen or read the first or second edition and anybody who's come in since 76 when the third edition was printed has probably not used or ever seen the first or second edition. But there were 30 stories between the first and second edition that never made it into the third and fourth edition. So people hearing or reading these stories for the first time, it'll be as if these are brand new stories. And a lot of these stories deal with early AA. And you have Bill Wilson intervening in a number of these different stories. The reason they didn't make it to the third and fourth edition was they had to cut stories somewhere. They had to make way for new stories or the big book would be a thousand pages long. It's been really cool to do that and, and know that it's helping people. And it's like if this podcast helps one person, then I've done my job. Yeah. Anyone who attends meetings with you knows that one of the things that you've stepped into the role of is welcoming each and every person yeah. by name with a hug or a handshake when they enter into yeah. an AA meeting. And you've been doing that for many years now. I think about... The Howard who, in his first few months of sobriety, would leave meetings early, arrive late, and mm -hmm. sort of storm off whenever there was a, something <laughs> right you didn't now. like being said. How that man has transformed into the man who arrives early and stays yeah. late and gets to personally know each and every person. And I've never seen you storm out of a meeting as long as I've been attending meetings. When you think about yeah. how this transition happened... And you think about your growth and development. Would you speak to that transformation? Well, I think, and thank you for those kind words about that. My sponsor, Mike, had me early on in sobriety. He said, I want you to introduce yourself to at least three men in every meeting you go to. Not the same guys, but three different men each time. So that got me used to talking to other men in the meeting, for one thing. Spiritually, what I found was that, and I started doing this many years ago, I would go into a meeting and I would walk around and say hi to everybody because I thought, well, if I don't at least say hi, how you doing, I might not get a chance to talk to them again that day or that week or whatever. So I started to do that. And then I started standing at the door because it was easier than having to walk around the room. And right. people always, you know, they were joking me about I look like a politician saying hi to everybody sitting down. But what I realized was a lot of people go into an AA meeting. They go right to their seat. They pull out their phone. These days, they pull out their phone. Yeah. They're self-absorbed with a device that pretty much keeps everybody else from talking to them. And it never ceases to amaze me that I go to meetings where guys sit right down next to each other and they don't even introduce. Right. And so I thought, no, that's not how this deal works. This is a fellowship deal. So I literally would go and I'm saying hi to one guy. I'd say to him, hey, have you met? And I'd say, I'd point to the guy next to them. And they, so they introduce each other at that point. And I thought, how wonderful is that for these people to get to know each other by virtue of me just saying, have you met this guy? You're sitting right next to him. Right. So then I started standing at the door because it was easier. And then I really worked on remembering people's names. And over time, one of the crazy things about that is it's almost like I'm a, you know, a trained dog or a circus seal or one of these other things, you know, where guys are saying, oh, there's Howard. He'll never forget your name. If he, he'll meet you once and he'll remember your name for the right. rest of whatever. And I say, no, it's not that way. <laughs> Some people's names I do remember after hearing them one time. Sure. But most people, to me, the secret to remembering names, it's like brute force for me because yeah. if I forget your name, what I've gotten comfortable in doing, which most people won't do, is I will admit it if I've forgotten your name. Mm. sorry, you told me your name last week. I still can't. Tell me what it is. Oh, Justin. Okay. Justin, I'll work on remembering it. 
if I forget it next time, I'm going to ask you again. Yeah. yeah. And by the third or fourth time I see them, I've got it. Right. Now, if I don't see them for six months or a year, there have been people I haven't seen since the beginning of COVID. I legitimately have forgotten their names because it slipped off the old noodle, you know, so to speak. It gives me a warm feeling inside just to be able to say hi to people. And I've done that at various luncheons and other things where I'll meet people and I don't know who they are, but I'll welcome them. I'll say, man, welcome to this event. I'm so glad you're here. And to me, it's such a small thing to do, but it makes them feel better. makes me feel better. And my core belief is that if you don't feel comfortable sitting in an AA meeting, no amount of the book or prayer or anything else is going to help you with this segment that's missing in your sobriety, and that is fellowship. Right. One of the other questions that I've seen you ask people that you're meeting for the first time is, do you have a sponsor? Yeah, do you have a sponsor? Just like what Mike asked you in the yeah. parking lot that yeah. one day that sort of changed your life yeah. for the better. And I've sponsored a lot of guys over the years. One of the things I've gotten to do is instead of turning a man down, I can't sponsor you because I've got 14 other guys I'm working with. I say, hang on a second, and yeah. then I'll see one of my sponsees and right. uh, have him come over. Or somebody I just know from that meeting, and I'll say, Jim, this is, uh, this is Clay. He needs a sponsor. Right. I know you work a good program, Jim. Are you available to be a sponsor? And most of the time, they're taken by surprise. But, well, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Well, listen, why don't you guys get together and, and send them off? And, and Before they have too much time to even they, think they, about before it. Before they have time yeah, to think right, about right. it. People joke about me being like a uh, sponsor broker. <laughs> and I'm really not. I'm just the guy who likes to see two people get to know each other because I know it's going to be good for them. I know it's going to be good for the room. I know it's going to be good for the fellowship of AA. I know it's just going to create an energy in the room where people feel a little bit more attached and present. And I think that's just my attitude towards AA. Well, and, uh, you know, we often say somewhat in jest, but with an element of truth mm -hmm. to the meetings we attend, that yeah. these are some of the best AA meetings in the world. And I would give I some agree. portion of that to your ability to connect people and to get the sponsorship conversation going well, and just for the fellowship dimension of greeting people the way you do. Thank you. And I want to thank you, too, for stepping in at the meetings you and I go to together. And you've been a greeter at the door, too. And I really love the fact that you do it so easily and so genuinely and with a big old smile on your face. And you're a big guy and a lot of people might not <laughs> approach you otherwise, but yeah. for you to be there standing and smiling and giving them a big old handshake or bear hug, it means a lot to people. And it may be the only hug they get that day. Right. It may be the only handshake they experience that day or fist bump or whatever people are doing. Mm -hmm. But it means the world to people. Yeah. And, and if they feel just a little bit more comfortable, my belief is one of the best gifts that you can ever give anybody in AA is the gift of inviting them to a good meeting. Right. It makes all the difference in the world. Indeed it does. Well, I really appreciate everything you've shared here today, Howard, uh, there Thanks, were elements man. of your story that I hadn't heard. Mm -hmm. And there were, there was the, uh, hearing it all together in this sort of conversational way that made it impact me mm -hmm. more deeply. And I feel like I know you even better and appreciate your life and your journey yeah. even more than I did before we did this. So I thank you very much for agreeing to be <laughs> on the other side of the microphone for this podcast. I'm so glad that, that I've been able to do this. This has been something. And this was your idea, too, which which I love. I, I, I love you, but I love the fact that you came up with this idea. Thank you so much, Howard. Thanks I appreciate you. you. Thanks for doing this, Adam. I really appreciate it. I'll see you soon. See you soon, brother. So long. So long. 
Well, my friends, that's a wrap for the 50th episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Adam M. for brilliantly hosting today's show. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least five people you know? That includes sponsors, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you leave a multi-star rating wherever you get this podcast, that'll help others find it more easily, too. Of course, you can always follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>